Hello, everyone. Welcome. What we'll do, each episode, cover the week of sports, end it with a short myself. Third episode, like we always do, honoring the jersey numbers that go back So, 51, we're we'll to 51 mentions. <laughs> First up on our list, Randy Johnson, one of the coolest nicknames in sports, the big unit. That could have worked in a lot of different industries. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the 6'10 Johnson was great at baseball and basketball, surprisingly. He uh, got a full scholarship, played baseball at U- USC. He also played basketball at the school. He'd get drafted by the Braves in the fifth round, the 82 draft, but he didn't sign. He'd get drafted again in the second round by the Expos, and uh, he'd spend some time in the minors before getting called up to the show. He'd only end up playing 11 games with the Expos before getting traded to Seattle, and that's really where we remember him. Well, a lot of people remember him there. He'd have some erratic pitching control his first few years, and uh, he'd lead the AL in walks three straight seasons, but everyone could see there was some untapped talent there as he threw a no-hitter in 1990 against the Tigers. It would take the a conversation with uh, a legend, Nolan Ryan, as we had covered in episode 34, to really help elevate Johnson's game to the next level. He made some adjustments to his delivery, which really helped in the long run. In a game against the Rangers, with opposing pitcher Nolan Ryan, uh, Randy Johnson struck out 18 batters in eight innings while throwing 160 pitchers, a number not reached in pitches since, you know. He'd lose his father to an erratic aneurysm that year, and he almost quit baseball until his mom convinced him otherwise. And lucky for us, she did. You know, as a Mariner, Johnson would make five All-Star games, win the AL Cy Young in 95, the first Mariner to do so. In that 95 season, John, Johnson finished with an 18-2 and record, the second highest winning percentage in AL history. He'd continue to have great seasons with the Mariners, occasionally dealing with back injuries. He was a little upset with the Mariners not locking him up long-term in 98, and they were hoping to keep him, but their downward spiral in the standings as they ended up shipping him to the Houston Astros at the deadline. He'd only have 11 starts in Houston, but go 10-1 and one and finish 7th in the NL Cy Young voting, despite only playing two months in the league. Astros fizzled out in the postseason, and uh, Johnson would sign a big contract to join the Arizona Car- or Diamondbacks, who were only in the second season of their existence, and they needed some star power. So that was the first season in Arizona, and he was awesome, winning the NL Cy Young, becoming just the third pitcher to win the Cy Young in both both leagues. We had Gaylord Perry, episode 36, and uh, Pedro Martinez, episode 45, the other two to do it. The big unit would go on to win the next three consecutive NL Cy Young Awards, bringing his career total to five. In that fifth and last one, Johnson also pitched the Triple Crown, a feat in which pitchers lead the league in wins, strikeouts, and ERA. That same season, he posted a 24-5 and record. That's crazy. He'd also make five more All-Star games along the way, bringing his career total to 10. In 2001, there was some magic in it in Arizona in just the fourth year of fourth year of existence while teamed with fellow ace Kurt Schilling, episode 38. <laughs> They'd go on to win the World Series in seven over the New York Yank- Yankees. Johnson started game six and came in relief in game seven. Some other highlights during his tenure was the freak accident in spring training where Johnson threw a fastball and it struck a passing dove, killing it right there. The ball was ruled dead and it was ruled in no pitch. It was just a single moment in spring training, but Randy Johnson says it's one of the most asked about moments in his career. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> the ripe age of 40 years old, uh, Johnson threw the 17th perfect game in ML history, the oldest person to do so. He'd uh, wind up playing with the Yankees and then go back to the Diamondbacks for wrapping up his career with the Giants, but... The big unit, one of the best left-handed pitchers ever to play in Major League Baseball. His 303 victories are fifth most by a left-handed pitcher. Uh, His career numbers are just wild. Like I said, 303 wins, 22nd all-time, 4,875 strikeouts, a second all-time just behind his mentor, as I mentioned earlier, Nolan Ryan. He's one of only 10 pitchers to be a part of the 300-win, 3,000 strikeout club and only one to be in the... Only one of four to be in the 300-win, 4,000-strikeout club. I mentioned his 10 All-Star games, five Cy Youngs, that triple crown. He also led the league in ERA four times and strikeouts nine times. 
He's a first ballot Hall of Famer, first player to ever go in the Cooperstown with a Diamondback uh, uniform on his plaque. So he had his 51 retired by those Diamondbacks, and uh, he was enshrined the Mariners uh, Hall of Fame. But that franchise, they need to retire his number, except, whoops, they gave it to someone else, which is the perfect segue to our next number 51 on our list. Japanese legend Ichiro Suzuki. He was a beast in Japan despite being 5'9". He had a slow start to his career in the MB- MPB, the Nippon Professional Baseball. Got off to a few seasons in the minor league because his then manager refused to accept uh, Ichiro's unorthodox swing. But once they got a new manager with the franchise, he really became... Uh, the everyday guy that lit it up and he'd make seven all-star games seven gold gloves seven best nine awards two Mets at the tarot shoriki awards and seven batting titles three-time pacific league mvp and was a member of the 1996 japan series championship teams <coughs> excuse me like his numbers in japan were crazy and the big reason he wanted to come to MLB was, like, they did a tour. He saw America. He's like, let me come. But the big thing, same thing that kind of hurt him in Japan was his size. People were like, he's too small to play here. But, man, did he show them. He'd come to Seattle, and he showed off, showing his arm off, throwing people out from the corner. And he had no preference in jersey number, but they gave him, for some damn reason, Randy Johnson's number 51. He was initially hesitant to wear such a... A jersey donning it, you know, a legend had worn it just before him, but he messaged Johnson saying he promised he wouldn't bring any shame to the uniform, a classy move, and he lived up to that, putting up amazing numbers his rookie season, like breaking a record, rookie record, 242 hits, Lloyd Weiner's record of 223 from 1927. His area in the outfield was known as Area 51 due to his gold glove winning fielding skills. His 350 batting average and 56 stolen bases. He was the first player to lead his league in both categories since Jackie Robinson in episode 42. <laughs> He'd go on to win AL MVP and Rookie of the Year, becoming just the second player to achieve the feat. Fred Lynn had done it with the Red Sox in 75 and Ichiro, that's it. <laughs> he continued to build his outstanding legacy in Seattle. 2004 was probably his best season, breaking George Sisler's 84-year-old record for most hits in a season. He'd finish with 262, five ahead of what uh, Sisler finished with. He was a staple in the Mariners outfield for 11 and a half seasons before getting traded to the Yankees. He'd spend a few more seasons there before signing with the Miami Marlins before returning to Seattle to wrap up his MLB career. He also suited up to represent Japan in the World Baseball Classic, and he's won two gold medals with them, one in 2006, another in 2009. Like When he retired, that is a full trophy case. I mentioned all the stuff he won in the MPB. Before he came into the MLB, but in the MLB, at 10 All-Star games, 10 Gold Gloves, 3 Silver Sluggers, 2 Batting Championships. He won that Rookie of the Year where he won AL MVP, and he was inducted to the Mariners Hall of Fame. But like I mentioned with Randy Johnson's part, you have two of the most legendary players in baseball history, both wearing 51 for your franchise. I got They got to figure something out to retire those. Like Those dudes need to be honored. It, I just don't understand how that has happened. <laughs> For the next 51, we'll go back to pitching, this time in a closing role. I'm talking about one of the best closers to ever play the game, Trevor Hoffman. Originally drafted by the Reds in the 11th round of the 89 draft, he would never play for the club in the majors. He was left unprotected in the 92 expansion draft, and the Marlins chose him. He'd earn two saves and 29 appearances as a rookie and get traded to the Padres in the during the Padres fire sale. He'd have some appearances in a tough year where they lost 101 games, but... During the shortened uh, strike season, he took over the closing duties, and after the strike, he uh, injured himself on two different occasions, one diving for a Nerf football and landing on his shoulder, and another diving and landing on it in a volleyball game. So he started pretty ineffectively and uh, needed surgery. Once he had that surgery, whew, became one of the best closers in the league. He had some great years, including a World Series run in 98, but the Padres would get swept by the Yankees. 
He plays last two seasons with the Brewers, where he showed glimpses of his old self, even being named an alternate for the 2009 All-Star game. But his best moment was when he surpassed the 600 save mark. He's just one of two pitchers to achieve the feat, the other being Yankees legend Mariano Rivera, episode 42. Hoffman finished his career with seven All-Star appearances, two-time Rolades Relief Man of the Year, and he led the NL in saves on two different occasions. He had his number 51 retired by the Padres and is in the franchise's Hall of Fame. And he was also inducted the Milwaukee Brewers Wall of Fame for his brief time there. He was inducted into the, Hall of, into the Baseball Hall of Fame on his third attempt, deservingly so. His 601 saves is second all-time just behind Rivera. Well, not just behind. Rivera's got a 51-save lead on him. But anyway, we'll go back to heat, back to hitting, and we'll mention uh, why Ichiro couldn't wear the 51 as a Yankee. It's because that number was already retired for Bernie Williams. He grew up in Puerto Rico, excelled in track and baseball, while running track in Puerto Rico in the 1984 Central American and Caribbean Junior Championships, he won gold in the 200, 4x100, and 4x400 relay events for people under 17. So that's pretty crazy. He was discovered by Roberto Rivera, a Yankee scout, and he loved the way he played, but he was only 16 and couldn't sign with the Yankees. So they moved him to a camp in Connecticut and officially signed him on the 17th birthday where... Spent some time in the minors before getting the call-up. He'd go back to the minors before coming up for good in 93, and that's uh, where he'd fit in there. George Steinbrenner tried to trade him a few different times, I guess, but the Yankees were patient with him, and it really paid off. In 1996 postseason, the Yankees went on a run, and Williams would win the ALCS MVP with his great play against the Orioles. Had a clutch home run in Game 3 of the World Series that sparked the Yankees' comeback as they came back from 2-0 down to win the World Series. The Yankees' first at that point since 1978. He'd win three more World Series with the Yankees, always clutch in the biggest moments, making five All-Star games, four Gold Glove Awards, and a Silver Slugger. He also won the batting crown in 98. His entire career was spent with the Yankees, and his 51 is retired by that franchise, where he's also honored in the Monument Park, so... Pretty good career by Bernie Williams. Underrated, I think, there. Um, last MLB mention, another legend that wore 51, Willie McGee. He played at Diablo Valley Community College, where the Yankees drafted him 15th overall in the amateur entry draft. He'd play in the farm system before getting acquired by the Cardinals, where he'd spend most of his 18-year playing career. He's called up to the show his rookie season and made an impact right away, featured in the historic World Series run. In Game 3 of the 82 World Series, McGee hit two home runs and made a leaping catch at the wall that would have been a ninth-inning home run. Cardinals rode that momentum and shocked the Brewers, winning the 82 World Series. McGee would then go on to make four All-Star games after that, winning the NL MVP in 85. Also won three Gold Glove Awards. Silver Slugger and two batting crowns. He'd make three more World Series appearances in his career, two with the Cardinals. They'd lose to the Royals and then lose to the Twins. After Whitey Herzog retired with the Cardinals, McGee was moved to the A's, where he'd make his last World Series, but they were swept by the Reds. So he'd have a brief stop there in Oakland. He'd signed a deal to join the Giants, and he'd hit consistently around 300, but after a bad ankle injury, he'd never really bounced back. He'd play a year with the Red Sox before returning to St. Louis to wrap up his career. Inducted into the Cardinals Hall of Fame, but his number 51 hasn't been formally retired. It may be because McGee currently wears the jersey as an assistant coach with the club. Cardinal through and through. We'll leave the baseball diamond, go with the gridiron, starting with maybe the f- most famous number 51 in NFL history, Dick Butkus. Great name, too. He played offense and defense, but preferred defense because he could hit people at Illinois University, where he'd play, like I said, both offense and defense. He wanted to go to Notre Dame, but the school looked down on married players at the time. But playing in Illinois, Butkus was a force, two-time first-team All-Big Ten, consensus All-American his senior season, sixth in Heisman Trophy in 63, and fourth in voting in 64, which was very rare for a lineman or any defensive player to be involved in the voting then. His dominant play led to the Bears drafting him third overall and the AFL's Broncos drafting him as well. After weighing his options, Butkus joined the NFL and the Bears and the rest is history. A beast right out of the gate, finishing third in Rookie of the Year voting. Over his nine-year career, he'd make eight Pro Bowls, five first-team All-Pro, three second-team All-Pro, Defensive Player of the Year in back-to-back seasons in 69 and 70, and he's the poster board of how to play linebacker and regarded as one of the best to play the position. 
1960s and 1970s all-decade team. He was named in the 75th and 100th anniversary teams and named one of the 100 greatest Bears of all time. His 51s retired by the Bears. He wore 50 at Illinois. They have it retired there. He was inducted to the Pro and College Football Hall of Fames. Such a hard-nosed defensive player would thrive in the entertainment history as well, appearing in many movies and TV shows. I remember watching him on the cheesy weekend kid show Hang Time. Diverse and beloved character in his entire life. Dick Buck has seemed larger than life, but uh, fortunately last October he passed away at the age of 80 caused by a stroke. He will never be forgotten and... When people use uh, the word linebacker, you think Dick Buckus, and you know it's a blast to say that name. But uh, another 51, another throwback, this time the center position. Jim Ringo played 15 seasons in the NFL, 11 of them with my Green Bay Packers. Played football at college football at Syracuse and was drafted in the seventh round of the 53 draft by the Packers. Considered undersized for his position, he'd emerged as one of the great centers of the game. The Packers' sweep was one of the most effective running plays of the game, and it was all thanks to Ringo. He was a member of two NFL championships in Green Bay in 61 and 62. He'd make 10 Pro Bowls, earning seven first-team All-Pros and two second-team All-Pros. After winning those championships in Green Bay, he'd get moved to the Eagles, and speculation went on how the trade went. That Some say Ringo showed up to talk to Vince Lombardi and his agent, and Lombardi was so mad, he left for a little break and then came back and said he was traded. Others said, you know, they were looking to trade him for a bit. Who knows? But he'd play the last, uh, he earned his last three Pro Bowls of his career with the Eagles, where he wore 54. But after retiring, he'd coach a long time in the NFL from line offensive line coach to head coach to offensive coordinator. He didn't have the best win loss record. He finished with three and twenty, but nineteen sixties all decade team. He's in the Pro Football Hall of Fame as well as the Packers and Eagles Hall of Fame. We'll go back to the linebacker position, the next Sam Mills. He didn't get a lot of recruitment out of high school, despite being a standout player. Another size thing, many say his 5'9 frame didn't help his cause, but he was a walk-on at Montclair St. College, which has become a university since then. And while playing there, he became the all-time leader in career tackles, tackles in the seasons, tackles in a game. He signed with the Browns, but get cut, prompting him to sign with the Argonauts in the CFL, but he was released from there as well. He's ready to give up football because whenever people saw him on film, they loved him, but they were like, oh, he's only 5'9". But, you know, it was a standard back then for linebackers to be at least six feet. So he was given another lifeline in the Philadelphia Stars of the USFL, and he lit it up, earning the nickname Field Field Mouse for delivering huge hits with a small stature. Earning a reputation as the tenacious defender and a real leader off the field, you know. He'd won two USFL championships and is described as arguably the best defensive player the league saw alongside Reggie White in the short history of the USFL. When his former coach in the USFL, Jim Mora, took the job with the New Orleans Saints, he's like, hey, Sam Mills, come with me. He'd anchor that Saints defense, leading him to one of the best in the NFL. He'd make four Pro Bowls. Two second-team All-Pros. He'd become a free agent and get a deal to join the Panthers. Saints match, but Mills didn't like how long it took him, so he joined the Panthers, become the perfect veteran for a young team. And he was the only player to start every game during the first three years of their existence. He'd catch a pick six in a game against the Jets that clinched the franchise's first ever win. Their career revival was noticeable, and Mills would make his fifth and final Pro Bowl appearance at the age of 37. That same season, he was named to his first and only first-team All-Pro. After retiring, he joined the Panthers' defensive staff. He'd have to give up coaching, though, after getting diagnosed with intestinal cancer. He was only given a few months to live, but he fought admirably. He'd unfortunately pass away in April 2005 due to cancer complications. In that upcoming season, they retire as number 51, making it the first number retired by the Carolina Panthers. And since his passing, uh, he's received many more honors. He's in the Carolina Panthers Hall of Honor, the Saints Hall of Fame, as well as their Ring of Honor. And he was inducted into the College and Pro Football Hall of Fame. So, great career and fortunate that he's gone so soon. Um, we'll move back to the offensive side of the ball. I'll mention guard center Randy Cross. He's a beast on a tough UCLA offensive line. First-team All-America, first-team All-Conference. Standout career led to the 49ers drafting him in the second round. He'd make All-Rookie, and he was a key part of three Super Bowls with the 49ers, making three Pro Bowls and three-time first-team All-Pros and one-time second-team All-Pro. When he was done, he'd go in the broadcasting, and he was inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame in 2010. 
wrapping up the NFL segment here. I thought I'd blitz, you know, see what I did there with some legendary linebackers to represent the number 51 the best, starting with Ken Norton. Ken Norton Jr., sorry, another phenomenal player at UCLA, first-team All-American, first-team All-Pac-10, led to the Cowboys select him in the second round of the draft. He make a Pro Bowl and second-team All-Pro pro well with the Cowboys and was a big part of their back-to-back Super Bowl wins. Super Bowl 27 win over the Bills and the Super 28 win again over the Bills. During free agency, Norton Jr. joined the rival 49ers in that season. He became the first player, and only since, to win three straight Super Bowls and the Niners crushed the Chargers by 23 in Super Bowl 29. He'd make two more Pro Bowls with the 49ers and his only first team all-pro nod. He'd get in the coaching where he joined Pete Carroll at USC developing some great linebackers that would come through the program. He'd win a BCS title there, which has since been vacated due to sanctions by the NCAA. And then when Carroll jumped to the Seattle Seahawks, Norton Jr. followed, and he was part of the coaching staff when they won Super Bowl Forty-Eight. He'd also work as a defensive coordinator with the Raiders before moving back to Seattle. He spent the last few seasons under Chip Kelly at UCLA, and he was just hired back in the NFL with the past few weeks, joining Dan Quinn's staff. The Washington Commanders, a little familiarity there as Norton worked with Quinn in Seattle. Next quick linebacker up to Keo Spike, standout Auburn University, a teammate of episode 48, Stephen Davis, uh, led to the Bengals, selecting him 13th overall in the draft. As a rookie, Spikes became the first Bengal to lead, rookie to lead the team in tackles since James Francis had done it eight years prior. Spikes' great time in Cincinnati led to him becoming a high-paid free agent, and he joined the Bills, continuing to develop as a great NFL linebacker, making two Pro Bowls there, including a first-team All-Pro his second season. That following season, Spikes would miss an entire season due to a torn Achilles. He'd return from that injury and you know, be a pretty good linebacker, but he, he was definitely limited. He'd play a season uh, in Philadelphia before finishing his career with the 49ers and Chargers. He moved to TV where he's been great on TV, and he's also been a pundit for Sky Sports UK, really spreading the game worldwide. Uh, the next 51 linebacker, James Ferrier, fantastic college career at Virginia, leading, leading him to getting drafted eighth overall by the Jets. He was on his way becoming a great linebacker, even playing his normally played outside linebacker position, but he joined the Steelers in free agency. They'd move him back to the inside linebacker position, and he'd start living up to that potential. Two Pro Bowls, first team All-Pro, second team All-Pro, big part of that defense that won two Super Bowls. After retiring from the game, he was inducted into the Steelers Hall of Honor, and he's also in the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame for what he did in college. Last 51 linebacker I'll mention, Jonathan Vilma. He was a standout among standouts at the U, Miami University, part of the 2001 BCS National Championship winning Hurricanes team. He was lighting it up in college. First team all Big East three years before, you know, three straight years. And this was before they moved to the ACC, so they were a Big East team. First team all American in senior season where he won the Jack Lambert Trophy, best linebacker in college. That led to the Jets drafting them 12th overall in the 2004 draft. He won NFL Defensive Rookie of the Year. In the next season, he'd lead the NFL in tackles, earning his first Pro Bowl appearance. After a few seasons and a bad injury, knee injury, Vilma would get traded to the Saints, where the he was a standout on a not-so-good defense. But with Vilma on the squad, the team got better, and he'd sign a long-term deal, get healthy, Second Pro Bowl of his career, and that season ended with the Saints going to the Super Bowl, where those very Saints beat the Colts to win the first Super Bowl in Saints franchise history. That next season, Vilma would make his third and final Pro Bowl, but then he was investigated as part of the old Bounty Gate scandal, where it was alleged defensive coordinator Greg Williams operating an incentive program that paid bounties for knocking opposing players out of the game. After the investigation, Vilma was suspended the entire 2012 season. Vilma learned about it while watching SportsCenter and immediately filed a personal slander suit against Commissioner Roger Goodell. Highly debated case on whether this was part of the game, how many teams are doing it, whether it's right or wrong, it obviously seems wrong. After an appeal process, Vilma was reinstated for the season, but he and teammates Scott Vegeta, Will Smith, and Anthony Hargrove were all suspended again. More appeals, and Vilma would still play 11 games that season, and his lawsuit against the commissioner was ultimately dismissed as well. And uh, that was really it, I guess. He'd retire a Saint. He was inducted to the Saints Hall of Fame, and you can hear Jonathan Vilma doing his thing on the Fox broadcast during the season. We'll leave the gridiron going to the basketball court. 
Not really a lot that come to mind here. One's larger than life. Bolban Marjanovic, the big Serbian's currently a backup center for the Houston Rockets, does not get a lot of playing time. He seems like a guy that would have fit perfectly in the 90s. He dominated in Europe in the Serbian League. He was an MVP three straight years there. He'd come over, join my Spurs, sparingly playing, but when he did, he'd put up big numbers, and he's such a big character. But he'd leave on a big contract to the Pistons where he didn't get a lot of time again. Like I said, it's... It's a guard league right now based on quickness and switching, so he kind of doesn't fit in right now. He'd also suit up for the Clippers, Sixers, Mavericks, and now, like I said, with Houston. His best season in 2018-2019 was the only one he averaged over 10 minutes a game, and he did really well with the time that he played. Now he seems to be playing the mentor position, and he does it pretty well. He lights up every room he goes with. He's appeared on the big screen playing an assassin opposite Keanu Reeves and John Wick, Chapter 3. He was also in the movie Hustle and another assassin in a Hulu original film, Self-Reliance. So at least he's getting them acting gigs because he doesn't get a lot of playing time. The only other 51, Ryan Archidiakono. He was a stud at Villanova right out of the gate. Big East all-rookie team. He'd make two second-team all-Big East nods and one first-team. His senior season, Villanova went to the title game, and his assist set up uh, Chris Jenkins for the game winner in the championship game as time expired. Archidiakono won the NCAA Most Outstanding Player, and... Despite all those great accolades, he'd go undrafted in the draft. He'd work his way on the rosters through the G League, playing with the Bulls, Knicks, and Trailblazers. He recently signed with the Knicks with a second stint, but he'd get moved to the Pistons at the trade deadline, and he was waived soon after. He did set a record this year that's not really good, failing the score in 20 straight games he appeared in. He's a solid guard. I hope he uh, makes it with another team here. We'll end up our jerseys by going to the hockey rink. Uh, number 51, Brian Campbell. He's playing standout hockey with the 67s where he was lighting it up, winning the Max Kaminsky Trophy for Best OHL's Defenseman of the Year. And he also won CHL Player of the Year and capped it off with the 67s beating the Hitmen for the Memorial Cup. Can't have a better year than that. Leading to the Sabres selecting him all the way down in the sixth round of the 97 draft. A few years later, he'd get the call up for the Sabres, making two All-Star games before getting moved at the deadline to the Sharks. He was a rental, hoping the Sharks would get to the Cup, which they didn't win. That offseason, he'd signed with the Blackhawks on a huge eight-year deal. Said he was offered more money elsewhere, but he wanted to be on a contender. And that deal would work out as he'd make another All-Star game, and more importantly, he'd raise the Stanley Cup as a champion with the Blackhawks. A big part of that team, and his defensive partner on that cup-winning team, Nick Boynton, was a teammate of his back in the Ottawa 67 days. He'd get dealt with the, to the Panthers, where he'd have a resurgent year, making another All-Star game and winning the Lady Bing, where he only had six penalty minutes all season. He became the first defenseman to win the Lady Bing since Red Kelly won it in the 53-54 season. Campbell would return to Chicago for his last season in the NHL before retiring. Like, hell of a career. 44 is retired by his 67s in the minors. And he's, he's got to get his number 51 retired with the Blackhawks. He's got. My last 51 mention in the segment that's really, wow, this has gotten along here. Current player, fourth overall pick, 2022 NHL draft, Seattle Kraken, Shane Wright. He's been on the radar for a lot of people, and they thought he'd go first overall. He dropped a bit in the draft where he said he'd have a bit of a chip on his shoulder, but he's got to struggle to make the Kraken roster. He's a top six guy that's having trouble cracking that top six. He's played some good minutes in the minors, and it sounds like Seattle's being patient with him. I mean, he's only 22 years old, but we'll see how his game develops here. Wow, that was a Jersey segment. We'll jump into the week of sports. We'll start with the Champions, Champions League. We had PSV and Dortmund. This was a very tasty matchup. It would uh, end in a 1-1 draw, though, so we'll go ahead to Germany. This one was in Netherlands, and it ended a 1-1 draw, so like I said, we'll go back to Germany for the second leg of that matchup. You had Inter Milan, Atletico Madrid, another tasty matchup. It was scoreless at first half, and it looked like it might be a draw. Then after an Inter Milan throw-in, there was some confusion, and Martinez went on a break for Inter. He had his shot blocked by Oblak, great keeper. Ball came to Arnautovic, who put it in, and they won. Atletico Madrid didn't even get a shot in that game. Big win for Inter Milan. Porto at Arsenal, last podcast. I said, you watch that Arsenal. They're going to get shocked by Porto. Hey, Porto got the message. This game, it looked like Porto was... They had, they had the better chances. Arsenal had more of the possession. 
And then really late, Galano would make up for his first half miss and curl one past David Rea, giving Porto the 1-0 lead in stoppage time, giving them the win, heading back to Arsenal, or back to North London, so we'll see how it goes in the second leg. But big win for Porto there. Another juicy matchup was Napoli and Barcelona, two former champions here last year. Uh, Napoli winning Serie A, Barca winning the... La Liga, and after a scoreless first half, we'd get uh, nice goals in the second half, a nice lead-up led to Lewandowski finding one, and then Osman would tie it up for Napoli, sending us back to uh, Spain for the second leg of that one, all tied at one. The Europa League, they had some crazy games with their playoffs running down there. Some wild finishes. Azerbaijan's side, Karabag, was hosting Braga. They were up 4-2 from their first leg, and this thing got crazy. Uh, A second yellow card would put put Karabag a man down. And then this really jolted Braga, who would get two goals in 13 minutes, and we go to extra time. And then Karabag, a man down, would score, going back up. But then Braga would get a late penalty, and then they'd score, tying it up in the 115th. You're like, oh, we're going to penalties. And then you'd get a game winner in the 126, 22nd minute. Karabag, the Azerbaijan side, moving to the round of 16. That's crazy. Absolutely crazy. We had another game that actually went to penalties with the Italian side Roma taking on last year's Dutch champions, Feyenoord. This one went uh, was a tie as well and went to penalties where Roma would prevail. Lots of great games in the Europa League. These were all playoff games that lead to the round of 16 matches, which the first legs commence next week. So we'll get more into that next week. But those were the European matchups. Each domestic games went down were pretty good too. Like in the Premier League, last Monday, the way it wrapped up before, as, like as I taped the last podcast, there was a game after. It took me a long time to get there. But yeah, Everton hosted Crystal Palace. And the big thing with that, Roy Hodgson, oldest manager ever in the Premier League at 76, had to leave. He left the team after falling ill during a training session. It was later announced that Austrian Oliver Oliver Glasner would be hired as his replacement. And that that game ended 1-1 in a draw. Nothing really wild there. There was also a make-up game midweek with Man City hosting Brentford. And the only goal was Erling Holland getting it on a breakaway and sliding it into the nets for a big 1-0 Man City win. And then there was a week that commenced midweek because uh, Liverpool and Chelsea would meet in the Carabao Cup final, which I'll get to. But this was a matchup between Liverpool and Luton Town, and Luton Town would get off to a surprising start. Ogbeni would get a rebound and put it away to put Luton up 1-0. Second half, Liverpool, it was like a tilted pool table. The ball was just going one direction. And Liverpool, four unanswered goals as they came back to win 4-1. Setting up a pretty wild weekend in the Premier League. A first half red card by Josh Brownhill really hurt Burnley. So promoted side had to play most of the game a man down. And if he hadn't followed the Crystal Palace player, that one could have been even worse. Second half, Crystal Palace finally broke through with the man advantage. American Chris Richards opening the score with a header. In the next 11 minutes, Jordan Ayew would double the lead. Mateta would score from the, score from the penalty spot, giving Palace's new manager, who I just mentioned, Glasner, his first win with the club. Aston Villa would host Nottingham Forest in a goal fest. Ollie Watkins opening the scoring, not even four minutes into the match. Douglas Louise would double the lead in the 29th and then score again in the 39th to make it 3-0. Niakate would get one back for Forest deep in the first half stoppage time. And then three minutes into the second half, Morgan Gibbs-White scored. It was 3-2. You're like, oh, this is getting interesting. But then Leon Bailey would have a fantastic run, go up, uh, getting another goal to put Villa up 4-2, which is what they'd win at. Man U hosted Fulham, and surprisingly, it was the Vizzers who looked way more dangerous. After a scoreless first half, Fulham would get a corner kick in the second. Following the corner, the ball would come to defender Kelvin Bassey, who rocked the, rocketed the ball into the net. It's first with the club, and after going a goal down, United were turning up the pressure, and then the 89th minute, they get a rebounding equalizer by who else but Harry Maguire, and it looked like they preserved the point. 
But you saw the good of Maguire and you saw the bad as he was way behind trying to keep up with uh, the counter-attacking Fulham side. And the ball came to Alex Awobi, who would find the corner in the 96th minute, giving Fulham the massive road win at Old Trafford. Brighton hosted Everton, and there were no goals until the 73rd minute. Everton young young defender Jared Brathwaite would blast one home, where he looked more like a striker than a defender. And things looked to really be going their way when Brighton's Billy Gilmore was given a straight red for a brutal foul. However, late in stoppage time with a man down, Pascal Gross would send a wonderful cross into the box where Captain Lewis Dunk would meet it, head it right into the game to tie the game at one. A clutch goal to preserve the point for the home team. Tough for Everton, though. They had three points in their eyes for sure. Man City went on the road to face Bournemouth, a dominated possession, but would only get one goal. 24th minute rebound tap in by Phil Foden, and that was enough to give the defending champs three points. Arsenal had a showdown with Newcastle, and they took out the frustrations from that midweek loss to Porto out on the Geordie Club. An own goal by Sven Botman didn't help Newcastle, but then three straight goals by Havertz, Saka, and Kiwiore really made it ugly. 84th minute goal by Joe Willick ruined the clean sheet, but that was all Arsenal. 4-1 win. Wolves hosted bottom side Sheffield United, and it was a lovely glancing header by Pablo Sarabia to find the back of the net and put Wolves ahead. Sheffield United never looked threatening, and the only highlight for them, or I guess low light for them, was the members of their own team that started pushing each other and yelling at each other, actually to the point where VAR actually had a look to determine if a red card could be given to Sheffield United, who was pushing themselves. Just crazy. (laughs) Probably a big reason why they're last in the Premier League right now. Uh, Chelsea's match with Tottenham was postponed. As I mentioned, they had a date in the Carabao Cup final. West Ham, oh, that's why I'm wearing the jersey again. We host Brentford Monday, London Derby. My hammers, there's word Lucas Paqueta can come back maybe. He's training with the team. We need the Brazilian back in the worst way. We go as egos. Um, So with everything that's happened in the table, how's the table look? Uh, Liverpool, current Premier League leaders with 60. Man City just behind them at 59. Arsenal in third at 58, real close at the top. Villa round out the top four with 52 points. Tottenham are in fifth, five points behind Villa, but they do have that game in hand. Which brings us to the Carabao Cup. Chelsea and Liverpool, biggest match in the UK over the weekend. And like a lot of Chelsea-Liverpool matches, this one lived up. You know, a lot of notable missing players from Liverpool. Klopp was going with a younger lineup. Then the 28th minute, more injury woes for Liverpool. Ryan Gravenberch was fouled hard. It was surprised to see Sacido not given a red card. It was a pretty bad foul. I've seen it red given for something like that earlier. But, uh, yeah, they kept going on with it. And then the second half, it looked like Liverpool went ahead with a lovely header by Van Dyke. However, VAR found that the Endo was setting like a basketball pick on a Chelsea defender from an off- offside position, and it was enough to take the goal away. I didn't necessarily agree with it. I could see how it was flagged out, but I'm like, come on. The second, and as the second half continued, Connor Gallagher had numerous chances. He'd hit the post first. Then he'd have what he'd have a one-on-one with Kelleher, who I got to admit, he broke down the... He angled really good by coming out, and he made a great save. So the the score stayed scoreless, and we'd need extra time. And late in the second period of extra time, Harvey Elliott, it looked like he was going to score on a header, but he hit the post. Liverpool would get a corner soon after, and this time Van Dyke would head it into the net, and it would count. In the 118th minute of the match, Liverpool goes up 1-0. Another trophy for Liverpool's trophy case and uh, another trophy on Jurgen Klopp's, Jurgen Klopp's uh, resume as he's departing at the end of the season. Great final. You gotta, you gotta love it like that. As a neutral, I don't really like either team, but it was a good final. Um, we'll go to Spain. At the end of last week's episode, I was hyping up a big matchup between Athletic Bilbao and Girona. It lived up. Bilbao pressured Girona and forcing a giveaway, getting an easy goal. Shankov would equalize for Girona in the 49th, and that it was only tied for seven minutes. Berenge would get his second goal of the match to put Bilbao ahead. And then four minutes later, Anaki Williams would put Bilbao up 3-1. Garcia would get one back for Girona to make it 3-2 with 15 minutes to grow. And Girona had a chance late, but Bilbao's defender, Vivian, cleared it off the line to preserve the win. Big win to end that match week, which brought us to this, this week's, with Real Sociedad starting the week hosting Villarreal. Not a good start for them. Santi Camasena had two goals for Villarreal, so after two after 47 minutes, they were up 2-0. 
Real Sociedad cranked up the pressure, getting a goal back in the 86 to make things a little tense, but uh, Villarreal would add a third to take the surprise 3-1 win. Barcelona was hosting Getafe after a tough midweek battle in the Champions League against Napoli, and they really showed their dominance here. They dominated Getafe, owning 68% of the ball, four unanswered goals, Rafinha, Jao Felix, Frankie de Jong, and Fermin Lopez, easy 4-0 win for Barca, and they looked like the Barca we know and love, (laughs) or or hate if you're a Madrid fan, I guess. But uh, Real Betis hosted Athletic Bilbao, who were coming off that big win over Girona, and uh, it would be Real Betis who looked the better side. After a Bicicci own goal gave Betis a 2-0 lead, Nico Williams would get back-to-back yellow cards and get the spiss on the game, putting Athletic Bilbao a man down, which kind of inspired them as they'd cut the lead in half before halftime. But Real Betis would get uh, regrouped and Johnny Cardoso would get a goal on the 67th to give Real Betis the 3-1 win. Late goals by each team in a 1-1 draw between Alves and Mallorca. Celta Vigo looked to have a road win wrapped up after Williot Swedberg put the visitors up 2-0 after 58 minutes. Wanmi would get one back for Cadiz. And then the 100th minute, 10th minute of stoppage time, a corner kick would lead the, the ball coming to Darwin Match's feet, and he'd blast it in the top corner, tying the game up at two, securing the draw for Cadiz. Huge result, as they uh, they give... That would have given Celta Vigo a, a big cushion in the relegation zone, but that draw keeps Cadiz just three points behind Celta Vigo for safety. Bottom of the table side, Almeria hosted Atletico Madrid, and they were humbled midweek against Inter Milan, like I said, not even getting a shot on that. And uh, they'd score two minutes into this game. It looked like things were going this way, but Luca Romero would answer. In the second half, DePaul would put Atletico ahead again. But again, Romero would tie things up, and that's how it would end. A huge result for Almeria. As I said, they're in the bottom of the league. Disappointment for Atletico. You could see the frustration on Diego Simeone's face. Not that he hides it well anyway. Two second-half goals, three minutes apart, led to Las Palmas and Otasuna tying, despite Las Palmas possessing 73% of the ball. Real Madrid would host a V in a close match, and a very unusual scene in that one. 33-year-old official had to come out of the game with a calf injury around the one-hour mark, prompting a 29-year-old fourth official to get his first taste of top-division officiating, only a game involving Real Madrid. He, uh, But he came in, he did pretty good. You didn't talk about him, which is as good as a ref. When they're not talked about, that's usually meaning they're doing a good job. Real Madrid had most of the possession but could not find their goal, so they went to the bench and super sub. Luka Modric came in, curled a beauty in off the post, putting Madrid ahead in the 81st minute and clinching the 1-0 win. Much like last week, Girona's going to wrap up the match day with a Monday game. This week, they host Rayo Vallecano. Scheduled match between Granada and Valencia was supposed to be played Friday, but that was postponed after a tragedy in the city took 10 lives. So out of respect for that, the game was postponed. I'll get more to the stats after the Girona game. I don't want to talk too much table until we get a little more even there. Syria during the midweek, there was a makeup game in the top division. Lazio went on the road and goals by Matteo Guenduzzi and Cataldi secured a 2-0 win over Torino. Led some good weekend footy. Bologna picked up, Bologna picked up a 2-0 win over Verona. Home side never really looked troubled. Sassuolo hosted Empoli in a thrilling match. Empoli would take the lead on two different occasions, but Sassuolo equalizing both time. At the night and stoppage time, Empoli would have a free kick in dangerous position. Bastoni would find himself open for a header, beating the keeper, putting them up for the third and final time as Empoli take the 3-2 road win. Salernitana looked like they were going to stump visiting Monza. Then in a span of five minutes late in the second half, Monza would get goals by Daniel Maldini and Piscina to seal the 2-0 victory for the visitors. Genoa hosted Udinese and scored two goals in less than four minutes late in the first half. And early in the second half, Udinese defender Christensen did not help them get his second yellow card of the match and... Udinese would finish the game a man down as they lost 2-0. Juventus hosts Frosinone in a fun match. Not even three minutes into the match, American Weston McKinney would cross to Vlahovic, who would score and put Juventus ahead. The visitors would spawn 14th minute when a tasty cross was met by Kadera, who would score his first goal since September to tie it up. The 27th minute, Frosinone would then take the lead for the first time. A perfect pass would come to Bresciani, who would unleash a powerful strike that hit the back of the net. And not even five minutes later, the big Serbian Valovic would get his second of the match, tying the game up. And Juventus was putting pressure. 
pressure on it. Looked destined for a draw, though. But it was basically the last kick of the game. Regani would get to the ball and put it through the keeper's legs at the tough angle, putting Juventus ahead five minutes deep in the stoppage time and keeping their slim title chances alive. Little bit of bad news for the game, though. Uh, Weston McKenney was subbed out of that game for Juventus. I guess it was a dislocated shoulder, so not too sure the extent of his injury. But like I said, the Americans have been having a great season for Juventus. Inter Milan went on the road to take on Lecce. They destroyed them 4 0. Latoro Martinez scoring two goals. David Fratesi and Steven DeVry each added one as well. Napoli's big man, Victor Osimhen, followed up his scoring midweek to score another to put Napoli ahead off a wonderful counterattack. Napoli looked like they were going to get a much-needed win, but then later on, a long ball was handled terribly by the Napoli defense. Zito Lavombo showed off his strength and held off the defenders who were in trouble and blasted home the stoppage time equalizer. Frustrating loss for Napoli as the defending Serie A champions might not even qualify for Europe next season. The last game of the weekend was a big one between AC Milan and Atalanta. The hosts got a perfect start when Rafael Leo showed off some fancy footwork before unleashing another rocket. A lot of rockets this weekend. And opening the score just three minutes in. Late in the first half, Olivier Giroud went to clear it for AC Milan, but basically kicked the Atalanta player instead, setting up a penalty, and Coop Miners would convert from the spot, and the match would end 1-1. Some big matchups to this the midweek here. Or sorry, big match on Monday to wrap up the the match week with Roma hosting Torino, Torino and Fiorentina hosting Lazio, and then when there's a few makeup games this upcoming week with Sassuolo hosting Napoli and Inter Milan hosting Atalanta, another big game there. So, we'll uh, with all those games yet to be played, we'll dive more in the Serie A table next episode. The Bundesliga in Germany, that kicked off with unbeaten Leverkusen hosting Mainz. They'd get a perfect start with Granit Xhaka scored not even three minutes into the match. That lead was short-lived, though, as Dominic Kaur would equalize less than four minutes later. The 68th minute, Robert Andrich would score for Leverkusen to put them ahead, and they'd hold on to win the game there, keeping them unbeaten in all competitions this season. Their current 33-match unbeaten streak surpassed the record set by Bayern Munich back in 2019 and 2020. Simply amazing what Xavi Alonso's done with his club. You know, with all these open positions this summer, a lot of teams are going to try to pluck him. We'll see if he stays at Leverkusen, and we'll see how the rest of the season goes for him. Uh, Bochum, they were feeling pretty good after beating Bayern Munich last week and traveled to Mönchengladbach to see if they could keep that momentum going. They could not. After having an early goal disallowed, things went from bad to worse. Three unanswered goals by the home side had Mönchengladbach up 3-0 after 72 minutes. Not even three minutes later, Philip Hoffman would get back one for the visitors, but another three minutes would pass and we'd get another goal, this time for the home side again. American Jordan Peefolk would score. Each team would add another one, and Mönchengladbach take the big 5-2 win. Some feisty draws in the Bundesliga as well. Verde Bremen hosted bottom side Darmstadt. Bremen going ahead nice and early off an own goal. Julian Jusfan would equalize for Darmstadt in the 33rd minute, and Darmstadt was filled with jubilation after a bad pass from Werder Bremen led to a go-ahead goal. However, VAR got involved and determined there was a handball before that goal happened. Huge Buzz Killington for Darmstadt, who has really been struggling to find wins this season. Heidenheim would take a lead against Union Berlin, but Union Berlin would tie it up and minutes later take the lead. Then in the second half, Heidenheim would equalize and that would end 2-2. Stuttgart dominated possession and after going ahead against Cologne, they looked good. Cologne would equalize not even 10 minutes later though when they'd preserve a draw. Wolfsburg went on the road to take on Eintracht Frankfurt. The visitors would score not even two minutes into the match. Philip Max would equalize in the 14th and again Wolfsburg would take the lead. And then uh, they looked to clear the ball, but it was immediately brought back by Frankfurt. Ball would come to Omar Marmouche. He hit the back of the net in stoppage time. 2-2 result. Bayern Munich, they've been struggling lately, and they had a tough matchup against Leipzig. Harry Kane would put Bayern ahead in the 56th minute, but Sesko would equalize in the 70th, and this looked like another draw. Stoppage time, Harry Kane would get the second of the match, clinching the win for Bayern. A huge win that keeps their very slim title chances alive. Like I said, Bayern and don't 
or Leverkusen don't lose, so it makes things tough. Dortmund hosted Hoffenheim in a big matchup. Visitors scored not even two minutes into the match. Some comp- some complacency led to Hoffenheim getting the ball and Bibu scoring. 21st minute, Malin would equalize for the home side. Then not even four minutes later, Schlotterbeck would score, giving Dortmund the 2-1 lead. In the second half, in a span of less than three minutes, Maximilian Bayer would get two goals. First, the deflected shot beat the keeper. Then after Dortmund would lose the ball, a few passes came to Bayer, who would score the winner. Huge comeback win for Hoffenheim and a crushing loss for Dortmund, who's still trying to stay afloat in the European hopes. Augsburg would host Freiburg in the last match of the weekend. Freiburg got an early penalty, and Grifo would convert from the spot 19 minutes in. In the second half, it looked like Freiburg were tiring. You could see they were feeling it from their Europa League game just a few days prior. And uh, Augsburg took advantage. They'd get two goals to come back and clinch the home win. And so let's have a look at the Bundesliga table. That's a little more even here. Leverkusen, obviously, a top of the league, 61 points, unbeaten. Bayern Munich sitting second at 53. Stuttgart in third, six points behind Bayern. And Dortmund round out the top four with Leipzig just one point behind them in the fifth spot. Liga, no midweek matches there in the French top division. The weekend kicked off with Mets hosting Lyon. The relegating battle Mets club started off great with Jorge Mkhitaryan opening the scoring 13 minutes into the match. Lyon's Alexander Lacazette would get the goal in first half stoppage time to keep things tied up going into the break. Then the 60th minute, former West Ham United player Saeed Benrama would receive a pass and find the back of the net. His first since joining Leon in the January transfer window, so good for him. I always like Ben Rama. Big comeback win for Leon, who have left that total disastrous start to the season in the dust here. Mets, they're continuing the struggle. Nantes would go on the road to take on Lorient. A 49th minute Castello goal would be enough to give Nantes the 1 0 win. Strasbourg hosted Brestois, and Brestois' Mehdi Camera would get a hat trick, including a 60th minute penalty to give them the 3 0 win. Le Havre would host Rims in a match that seemed to lack incitement until the 64th minutes into the match. Durami would put Reims ahead, and then not even two minutes later, Fouquet would get his second yellow card, and Reims would go down a man. And eight minutes later, Toure would score from the spot to tie the game. And Le Havre had an extra man advantage, but they'd award a stoppage time penalty. And Durami would score, giving Reims the 2-1 win. Craziness. Monaco would go on the road and take on Lons. Balogun would open the scoring for the home side. And an own goal would double Monaco's lead. But then less than a minute later, like immediately after that goal, Lons would catch Monaco off guard and Wahi would get a goal back. Lons would then equalize in the 77th minute through Wesley Saeed and it looked like it was going to be a draw. And then former Liverpool striker Minamino scored in stoppage time to give Monaco the win. Toulouse hosted a hot Lille team. Lille would score just before halftime. Haraldson would find the back of the net, but it would be a tale of two halves. Toulouse would score three goals in 17 minutes to surprise Lille with the 3-1 win, despite only having 31% of the ball all game. Few draws in league on as well. Nice and Clermont-Fort would play to a scoreless draw. Rennes looked like their 33rd-minute goal by Amin Guerri was enough to get the win, especially when it looked like PSG had a penalty that was overturned. But then even deeper in the stoppage time, substitute Gonzalo Ramos would take move and get taken down by the keeper. The ref said no penalty, but VAR said uh-uh-uh, giving PSG the late penalty. Ramos would stop, step up and convert, saving a point for the Parisian side. Disappointment for Run as they were oh so close to getting that upset victory, but a draw is still a good result for them, but they were thinking they could get the upset. Looking at the league on table, PSG have an 11-point cushion atop the league. Brestois sit in second place at 43. Monaco sit in third, just two points back a second, and Nice round out the top four. Lille just two points out of that fourth spot. Go to hockey here. A lot of footy there. The NHL's been exciting and full of some great hockey this past week, unless you're a Coyotes fan. 12-game losing streak's looking pretty bad right now, and I mean, they did push the Jets to OT in their last game, but it's been about it. Nothing really's been good for them, especially news about Adam Rosiska. Video popped up online of the young Slovakian doing some cocaine or another drug that is being prepped for nasal insertion. He was soon after placed on conditional waivers for purposes of contract termination by Arizona. Continuing with some downers in the West, the Golden Knights Oilers were both on three-game losing streaks. That combined with the Kings' recent good plays made things a little tight in the Pacific. 
Canucks play has dipped a bit lately too, but they still have a decent cushion in the division. Central division is still a tight race. The top there, I mentioned the Jets overtime win over Arizona. They're currently on a three-game winning streak. They're sandwiched between the division-leading stars and Colorado Avalanche. The Avalanche's play of late has been has dipped as well. They're on a two-game losing streak. Uh, cool scene out west in Chicago when the Detroit Red Wings came to town on Sunday. Patrick Kane was giving a standing ovation by the crowd. He played so many years in front of. It was a pretty emotional scene as the standing ovation just kept going and going. And you could see the emotion on Kane's face, on his parents' face. It was just great to see. And the game would go to overtime and end in true Hollywood fashion. Patrick Kane would get a breakaway in overtime and go top shelf to give Detroit the big win at his old stomping grounds. Out east, like I mentioned, those Red Wings, they're riding a five-game winning streak, but that's not even the longest winning streak in the conference. Maple Leafs are cooking. Seven-game winning streak for Toronto. During this streak and a win over Arizona, Austin Matthews became the fastest American-born player to reach 50 goals in the season. He's really been cooking, and this team's getting results as well. The Leafs need to keep their winning ways up to catch the Panthers and the division-leading Bruins, but they're closing ground with this streak. The Rangers have opened up their lead in the Metropolitan with uh, their 10-game winning streak, but it came to a... uh, The streak was broken by the Columbus Blue Jackets of all teams. Didn't see that coming. My Flyers are on a two-game losing streak. Their most recent loss was a thriller, though. Even in defeat, the Flyers lost 7-6 against the Penguins with Sidney Crosby getting five points, but it was an entertaining one. Highest-scoring game between the in-state rivals since 2013. Like I said, some good hockey out there. Uh, Nikita Kucherov still leading the league in points with 102. Colorado's Nathan McKinnon behind him at 96. Nathan Matthews of Toronto, like I said, goal machine. He's 52, has him 13 goals ahead of the guy in second. Florida's Sam Reinhart. Chicago's Connor Bedard is back in the lineup. Still leading rookies in points and goals. He's got 40 on the season in points. He's sharing the lead with goals with 17 with Minnesota's Marco Rossi. Winnipeg's Connor Hellebuck leading the league in goals against average and save percentage. Las Vegas Gold Knight Aiden Hill has been working his way back in the lineup a little more, and that play could uh, impact the stats as well as he's getting more games in. Which brings us to the college hoops, men's college hoops, some fun in the Big 12. Houston hosted Iowa State and held on for a big win in that one. Texas took care of Kansas State. The biggest upset of the week was number one ranked UConn losing on the road to Creighton by 19 points in some Big East play. Creighton, I'm telling you, they've been one of the hardest teams to read all season. As a guy that occasionally bets on college ball, they can be infuriated. <laughs> like, I don't know, they drop games and then, I don't know, they go on and beat the number one team in the country. I don't know, first time they beat a number one ranked team in program history. The Big 12, BYU flexed their home court advantage in a win over Baylor. Texas Tech would hold on to a win over TCU as well. Tennessee still looks good in their win over Missouri. St. Mary- Mary's won their conference game over San Francisco. While well, ranked San Diego would lose it to a tough but ranked unranked Utah State. Big games in the SEC throughout the week. Crazy ending in Alabama, Florida with the Crimson Tide holding on in overtime to take the win. LSU stunned Kentucky at the buzzer. Tyrell Ward hit a floater as time expired to give the Tigers the huge win. You could see Angel Reese and the rest of the LSU faithful storm the court after that upset. Mississippi State beat rivals Ole Miss and SEC play as well. Duke and Marquette each dominated their conference games, beating Miami and DePaul respectively. The upset train continued as Penn State upset number 12 Illinois with three clutch free throws to win that. The Big Ten, George Mason looked like, er, sorry, that was in the Big Ten. George Mason looked like a Cinderella team of years past, surprising Dayton in the Mountain West. Colorado State struggles continued, losing a tight one to New Mexico. And Indiana State, after being ranked and losing back-to-back, uh, they got a win over Valpo there. Continuing through the midweek, Purdue dominated Rutgers. Washington State went in Arizona and beat the Wildcats late in the big Pac-12. UConn bounced back from that brutal loss to Creighton on the weekend by taking it out on Villanova in a big win. Arizona bounced back by their loss by beating up on Washington. Washington State, who beat Arizona in that upset, had a bad loss to Arizona State. The ACC had one of the biggest upsets of the day. Wake Forest won at home against Duke, prompting a court court rushing where Duke big men Kyle Filipowski was actually hurt and had to get helped off the court, which prompted more people to say, how much longer are we going to do this? You had Caitlin Clark getting injured on a court rushing. Now this... 
North Carolina took care of business in the ACC, beating Virginia. Big 10 brought some of the best hoops again. Or Big 12, sorry, with Houston going in the Baylor and winning. Iowa State won at home against West Virginia. Kansas won big at home over Texas. UCF and Kansas State's up and down season continued, both up this time. UCF beat Texas Tech. Kansas State beat Bayou. In the SEC, Tennessee, Georgia, South Carolina, and Florida picked up wins. Kentucky won a shootout with Alabama. To end the weekend, Purdue beat Michigan in Big Ten play. And in the Big East, Marquette thumped Xavier. And Creighton followed up their big upset over the number one team in the country by falling flat and losing to St. John's. And there was a team in the American Conference, but team two potentially ranked teams by year's end. Memphis hosted Florida Atlantic, and it was a thriller. Memphis pulled away late and won. <coughs> Excuse me. Don't count out Penny Hardaway's team come tournament time. We'll jump to the women's side of college hoop. There were some favorites taking care of business to start the week. LSU took care of Texas A&M in the SEC. Notre Dame and freshman Hildalgo took out Duke in the ACC. A battle of ranked teams in the Big East had Paige Beckers and the Huskies beating Creighton by 20. The Big Ten, there was a huge upset with Illinois beating Indiana by 20. Oklahoma was troubled by a tough Cincinnati team but pulled off the win. Nebraska is working their way to getting ranked with another win in the Big Ten, this time over Northwestern. Also in the Big Ten, Wisconsin picked up a nice road win over Minnesota. The Big East, Marquette won a close one over Seton Hall, and Georgetown took care of St. John's. The Big 12, it's been like my favorite to watch in men's and women's hoops, and it's been... That trend continued. Texas held on to a close win over Texas Tech. Baylor won at home over Kansas. K-State needed overtime and cruised in the extra frame to take down fellow ranked West Virginia. Battle of unranked teams, Iowa State and freshman Beast, Audi Cooks, took down Houston. TCU also took down BYU. Dayton ended their three-game losing streak in a weird way in the Atlantic 10. Dayton's opponent, Davidson, had to forfeit the game due to non-COVID health and safety protocols. So Dayton wound up playing Miami University Hamilton as a substitute, and they beat them 112-45. to Miami Hamilton is a member of the United States Collegiate Athletic Association, so they were definitely outmatched. But you know what? They were asked to show up and play, and they did. So good on them. Also throughout the midweeks, some top teams flexing on competition. South Carolina destroyed Alabama. Ohio State beat Penn State. And there were some some upsets, though, too. Caitlin Clark struggled to find her shot as Indiana, who had just got pounded earlier, uh, pressured the guard, and uh, the Hoosiers pulled off the upset. North Carolina would give rivals NC State their fourth loss of the season. UCLA, LSU, Notre Dame, and Louisville all picked up big wins. Some big games in the Pac-12 went down with Arizona going into Stanford and stunning the Cardinal, giving them their fourth loss on the season. USC held on to win a battle of ranked teams with Juju Watkins scoring 42 points. The freshman has been a beast for the Lady Trojans, and Oregon State beat Washington State as well. Creighton won their Big East matchup against Villanova, and Gonzaga continued their winning ways in the Western Conference. The Big 12, Texas took care of UCF, and Oklahoma beat up in Oklahoma State. Baylor went in the West Virginia and used a costly turnover by the Mountaineers to get the road win. The weekend at College Hoops wrapped up with some interesting matches. matches. South Carolina obviously won again, crushing Kentucky, moving to 27-0 on the season. LSU beat Tennessee in the SEC as well. Some big upsets in the ACC, Virginia beating Louisville, and Duke giving NC State back-to-back losses. Pac-12 also had some upsets with Washington beating Oregon State and Utah beat USC, despite freshman Watkins scoring 30 points. Stanford bounced back and got a big win over Arizona State. Pac-12 had an upset of their own as Kansas surprised rival Kansas State. The Big Ten, Caitlin Clark and Iowa bounced back with a big win over Illinois. Clark had a triple-double, 24 points, 15 boards, and 10 dimes. But more importantly, teammate Stelke had 20 points as well. Come tournament time, Caitlin Clark's not going to be able to do it on her own. She's going to need to rely on her teammates, so it's good to see them stepping up in that game. Also in the Big Ten, number two Ohio State beat up on Maryland to push their winning streak to 14. 
one big mention of a big tournament in Canada here, the Scotties. Quick shout-out to that women's tournament. Two Titans facing off. Ontario's Rachel Holman beat Manitoba's Jennifer Jones in the final. Send Holman and her team to the World Championships in Sydney, Nova Scotia. Which brings us to our short. Wow, crazy sports in the footy world, the college basketball. I hope everyone's getting their bracket ready. Or at least side-eyeing the bracket, thinking of what's going to be showing up in there. But for this short, I'm like, I don't know where to go with this one. Last week's was almost kind of reminiscent, like, hey, we're at 50. But nobody's got time for reminiscing. Let's get back to the shorts. This one, I'm going to go to an old workplace story. I no longer work there. I was a little young and crazy there. I don't want to say where it is. I don't want to expose it like that. So I'll just be cool and try to keep it vague. But breaking down what happened. So here we go. As I was working in this assembly-like kind of environment, hopefully that didn't already give it away. But uh, it got a little monotonous at times. And, you know, there were some people that would come from other countries to work there. When I don't know if they were on visas. I don't know how that all worked. But it was a cool way to, like, get introduced with different cultures while working with other people. But, yeah, like I said, it was monotonous. And you could do the work almost like second nature. And then the one day I was talking with the guy from overseas and he mentioned marijuana. I was like, yo... I got you, man. I got you. So uh, another coworker heard, and he's like, I'm in. So at lunch, I'm like, fuck it. We'll go get lunch. And we ran home to my house. I live with my parents. We all jumped in the Plymouth Neon, raced home. Like, it's only a half-hour break, right? So get home, run downstairs. My dad's like, what? And I was like, hey, run down there run to my bedroom or the dope den whatever you want to call it <laughs> rip a few bong hoots coughing it up it looked cloudy as hell in there run outside jump in the car don't recommend this but drip back to work uh get inside you know thinking it's all good because yeah you only have a half hour so you just crush whatever food you could find thinking you're very incognito but smelling like all kinds of skunk eyes redder than the devil's dick so you're like shit play it cool play it cool you know and then the guy from the other country he was supposed to do the last step before we you know finish what we were building but he forgot to do that and just tried to lift it up so you had lumber flying everywhere shit was going over he starts giggling he's holding his belly laughing in my mind i wanted to say you're like yo what the fuck you doing stop but I just was laughing, so that didn't help out. Everyone's laughing. The boss looks out, I'm like, thumbs up in as we're cleaning up, trying not to continue laughing. How the fuck did we get through that day? How did I not, you know, it's just thinking back, what were you thinking, man? But, hey, it worked out, you know, good, good job. I don't know. We all, if they still work there, I don't think so. So it all works out, you know, we survived. I do not recommend that at all, you know. Do not as I did, but learn from the piece of shit I was. I think that's Buddhist something or whatever there. But that's uh, <laughs> that's 51 in the books, guys. That's another one. Thanks again for coming and checking it out, tuning it in, checking it out. You know, like I said, uh, nothing NBA in here, but if you want NBA, check out my YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Check the page out. Find the NBA recaps. A lot of good going on in the NBA. A lot of good going on in the sports world, like I said, and tried to break down for you. It looks like there's a blizzard outside. I'm hoping things are going crazy. They call it an Alberta Clipper. I don't know. That sounds dangerous. The only Clipper I trust in Los Angeles. But, uh, yeah, be safe out there. Thanks again for coming out, guys. Rent City out.